18. If you're reading from the Bible that's under your seat, we're going to be on page 742. Luke chapter 18. Did anybody catch the, when Scott, the, the school that he went to, the abbreviation was ADHD? Did anybody pick that up? Yeah, okay. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. It says, a certain ruler asked him, talking about Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because, well, he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Well, those who heard it then asked, well, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is, impossible, is possible with God. Peter said to him, well, we left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Nice job. You guys are quiet today. Good morning. Hey, uh, you might have figured out already um, that I'm kind of did a bait and switch. Um, we're not teaching out of First John today. Uh, God has laid this message on my heart, and I really wanted to uh, uh, to teach it, and so we're taking a one-off today, and we're going to uh, teach on the passage that you just heard Dwayne read, and uh, maybe I should have sent you an email, but maybe less of you had been here if you heard I was going to talk about tithing and uh, giving and generosity. So here you are. I got you. You're a captured audience. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use this very familiar story uh, as kind of a springboard to talk about uh, generosity and, and how God wants us to view all of our stuff. All of the good stuff that God has given us. And the one thing we should probably start with is realizing that, that as um, Americans, we all have a lot of stuff. And uh, it's good for us to ask the question, God, what do you want me to do with, with all the things you've given? And, and I want you to think broader. This isn't just about money. This is about our work. This is about family. This is about all of our resources. And uh, I'm going to use this familiar story, but I'm pretty confident that I'm going to tell the story in a way that's unfamiliar to most of you. I've been saying all week that I'm going to turn this story on its head, and that when we leave today, I think you're going to see uh, the story you just heard in a, new, uh, in a new way. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, that you've laid this, uh, this talk on my heart, that you have really used this story to uh, grab my attention, and Lord, I even pray right now as I get ready to, to teach through it that you would um, stir in all of our hearts, that we would hear what you want us to hear 
but just as importantly, that we would do what you want us to do, that we would be people who hear and obey and uh, live into that, uh, uh, that ability to really be a disciple of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So sometimes in the Gospels, Jesus uses stories, and uh, we call these stories parables, where he'll tell a story, and he uses that story as a, an application or an example uh, for the learners. But in this case, it's, it's not a parable. In this case, the story that Duane read is actually a historical fact. The conversation between this young man and Jesus actually happened. Have you ever thought about how cool that is? Have you ever like, even stopped to think about that in the Gospels, in the Scriptures, we have all of these conversations sort of, they're, 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 they're encapsulated in time. We get to, to read about actual conversations that happened 2,000 years ago. And this one actually happened. It's a historical fact. And it was so significant that Matthew... Mark and Luke all put it into their Gospels. And so we read it out of Luke, but we're going to kind of bounce into some of the other Gospels because they bring a little more color, if you will, to the whole story. And if you, if you go back, you, you, you'll see, if you looked at all three of the stories, that the main character in this story, apart from Jesus, who I guess is the main character, is this, this young man who uh, they tells us that he's wealthy, it tells us that he's young, and it tells us that he's a person of influence. Uh, one of the, the words to use him is a ruler, but the word could also be leader. So, so really, when you think about it, this guy had a, had a lot going on for him. He, he had a lot of things that we would all want. He had his youth, so he had his whole life to look forward to. He had wealth, which in that day and age was a pretty uncommon thing. He was able to buy what he wanted, when he wanted, and people somehow were under his authority. So he was a young man with influence. And, and just, I want you to hold on to that picture because I want you to realize in that culture and, and in that day and age, he was really in a very amazing position. He had a lot going for him and a lot of things that we would actually envy I wouldn't mind being a little younger myself so there's things in here that we would all sort of want so look at verse 18 I'm going to jump right into the story Luke writes uh, a certain ruler or you could say leader again ask him and he asked Jesus and Luke's version is, is totally historically accurate, but if you go to Mark 10, which we're not going to go there, I'm just going to show you on the screen, Mark brings a whole lot more color to the story. He says, as Jesus started on his way, a man, this is the same man, same story, ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And one of the things that I think is often overlooked or neglected in this story is this young leader's passion and his excitement. I mean, think about it. He runs up to Jesus. He falls on his knees and he asks him this amazing question. And in a lot of ways, he, he sort of checked his dignity at the door, right? Like, like a grown man running up to another grown man and falling on his knees and asking such, a, such an amazing question. I think we sometimes fail to recognize the posture, the position that this young leader put himself in. And then this conversation ensues. But it's not just your average casual conversation. It's a, it's a conversation full of emotion. It's a conversation full of drama between Jesus and this young leader. We also say that, see, if we look at it, that, that this, this guy seemed to know who Jesus was. The very fact that he fell on his knees. But he, he refers to him as good teacher which is just a, a way of showing respect or honor or even, even beginning to worship him. So there's, there's something going on in this young man that, that has stirred him to really ask an amazing question. And so we ask him, what must I do? What is required of me? And I think this is a great place 
for us to sort of just pause for a minute. This young leader asked this amazingly brave question, what is required of me? And the question is, are we willing to ask Jesus the same question? Are we willing to to fall on our knees in front of Jesus and say, God, what's required of me? What do you desire from me? What do you really want from me, Lord? What does it look like for me to really walk with you and to follow you? I think the question takes incredible courage. And it's a great place for us just to stop for a moment and ask, are you willing to ask the same question? Are you as brave as this young leader to fall on your knees before a holy God and say, God, what do you require of me? And I guess the other part of the question, if you're willing to ask, are you willing to listen to the answer? Because it's one thing to ask, but to really listen to what Jesus says. Lord, what are you asking of me? What do you desire from me? So this rich young leader, he asks the question, and the two of them begin this dialogue about the law. So, so they list off a, a list of laws, and you can see them in there. And, and in, in the end, the young guy in his youthfulness and in his, I guess you could almost say arrogance or maybe ignorance, he says, well, I've kept all those since I was just a youth, which we all know he, he really couldn't have. Because no one can keep the law. And, and what I love about this, though, is that Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't really um, take him out of his naiveness. He just sort of hears him and hears what he says. But we know the teachings of Jesus that even if you thought certain things, you would have been out. But there's no judgment in what Jesus says. And, and the interesting thing is, I was talking to Norflet about this. And he said, he said, well, the cool thing is it wasn't a conversation about following rules. It was a conversation about following Jesus. And so Jesus kind of just skips right over that. I think he doesn't want to get bogged down in the, well, you might have thought you followed the rules, but if you thought this, you really didn't follow the rules. That's really not the point. The point is, it's a conversation about following Jesus. So he doesn't correct him. And, and, and if you look at Mark again, we get a little more color. Mark 10, 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He didn't look at him and judge him. He didn't look at him and roll his eyes. He looked at him and he loved him. And I love that picture of of Jesus seeing him and even seeing him in his ignorance or arrogance. I don't know what it was. And he still loved him. That's pretty encouraging to me. And so then he says to him, and look at verse 22, he says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then, then you'll have treasures in heaven. Then come and follow me. So there's two distinct elements, if you will, to this invitation. And the first is that he sell everything and give it to the poor. If you were here just a few weeks ago, we, we, I preached a sermon on, on not treasuring your treasures and not, not storing for yourself treasures where, where moth and rust can destroy. And these are the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's coming back to a familiar teaching. And he even says, if you sell everything and give it to the poor, then you're going to store up treasures for yourself in heaven. So sell everything and give it to the poor. And the second part is come and follow me. This once-in-a-lifetime invitation. An actual invitation to follow Jesus during his earthly ministry. Did you ever stop and think about it? Like, this is the only time, there's only a three-year period where Jesus is doing what he's doing right now and walking the earth and, and performing all those miracles. And he's offering this young leader the invitation to follow him as he, as he works through his earthly ministry. It's a pretty amazing invitation. I'm sure that the, the young leader didn't understand all of that. He didn't really comprehend all that he was being invited into. But I guarantee you, That invitation meant more to him than it does at first reading to you and I. 
we have to take a minute and we have to understand the culture in which this was offered. So, so and, and just stay with me for a minute, but whenever Jesus said, come and follow me, there's more to the invitation going on than just hang out with me. There's more to the invitation than just follow me and see me do my stuff. So, so this is a, an era of time, this is a culture where there were no colleges, there were no trade schools, there were no ways of going and getting your skill set. And so it was an apprentice-based society. What that means is that you learned whatever you were going to do for a living from someone who was doing that very thing. So Jesus was an apprentice to his father who was a carpenter. At some point... That changed, and we know that, but there was this picture of an apprentice-based society. So you learned your trade probably from a family member, most likely your dad or maybe an older sibling, but that's how you learned. And there was, there was this, this piece in place of an apprentice-based society, but every Jewish boy, every Jewish boy, and especially every Jewish boy's parents would, would want for or pray for their son to be selected by a rabbi to follow that rabbi and to be trained to be a rabbi. So if you were going to learn to be a rabbi, you learned it from a rabbi. You didn't go to seminary. You actually became a disciple of a rabbi. So when Jesus was going around, he was saying, come and follow me. When he was picking out Andrew or John or any of the disciples, he said, come and follow me. They would know the minute that they heard that invitation, they would know that what he was saying was, I want you to leave your profession Right? I want you to leave what you've been doing. I want you to stop being a fisherman. I want you to stop being a tax collector. And I want you to become my apprentice. I want you to become my disciple so that you can learn an entirely new trade. You can learn an entirely different way of living. So this come and follow me was, was such a bigger invitation. And so, so here's this, this young ruler. When he hears those words, he would have known immediately that he wasn't just being invited to hang out with Jesus. It wasn't just this invitation to walk along. So, so there's this invitation to, to sell everything, to start a new way of life and, and to follow Jesus and to sit under his teachings and to learn from him and, and to start really a new line of work. And here's where I think the story uh, turns in a direction that I think is most often misunderstood. Or at least I think there's some really faulty assumptions made of the story. So look at verse 23, Luke 18, 23. It says, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. So what do we naturally assume? We naturally assume that he didn't do it. We even have probably heard that taught that this is one of the great tragedies of scripture and that this guy missed out on the greatest invitation that he was ever given. But, but I think there's another very plausible and likely interpretation. It says when he heard this, he became very sad. The word very sad is one word. The word is paralopos in the Greek. And it's the same word used to describe Jesus in the garden. So in Mark, it says of Jesus, he's talking, and Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Paralopos, overwhelmed with sorrow. Paralopos, very sad. Jesus was full of sorrow, but what do we also know about Jesus? He went to the cross, right? He was obedient, so you can be sad and you can still be obedient. The one thing we can be sure of from this story is that what Jesus asked of the young leader made him sad. We don't know if he was obedient or not. But what we do know is that what was being requested of him was going to cost him something and it made him sad. It made him sorrowful. 
I don't know that you can find anything in the scriptures that said he refused to do it. Now you can say, well, the scriptures say that he went away sad, because that's what some of the gospels say, but he was told to go away. Jesus said, go and sell everything you have. So he couldn't have gone and sold everything he had and just stayed there. He had to do that very thing. And he went, and you don't see him arguing, and you don't see him questioning what Jesus says. What you hear is that he went. And it's just as likely that he went and actually sold everything he had and became one of Jesus' followers. Remember, there's more than just the 12 followers of Jesus. There were more than just the 12. So he could have been one of those other people that followed. We don't really know, and I don't want to tell you I know that he did. What I do know is that what Jesus was asking made him sad because it was a sacrifice. Anyone who thinks following Jesus is for wimps has never followed Jesus. Because, because he says, if you want to have your life, you have to lose your life. And he says, if you want to follow me, you got to pick up your cross and, and follow me. That doesn't sound like the path for wimps, if you ask me. But, there, but this passage has been such a huge encouragement for me because I think I've always beat myself up when I've felt sad or, or struggled with something God was asking me to give up. When God was calling me to sacrifice something and I felt sad, I felt like I don't have enough spiritual depth. I must not be spiritual enough. I, 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 don't, I don't understand this. And there's something liberating for me to realize that, that it's okay to be sad. As a matter of fact, that's what makes it sacrifice. If it were easy, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. And so there's something liberating for me in thinking about that it's okay that what Jesus asked of this young leader made him sad. It's okay that what God is asking of me sometimes makes it, it's hard. I grieve it. I'm sad. It, there's something that I'm going to lose in that, and it's okay to be sad. The question is, are you still going to be obedient in what Jesus is asking you to do? And here's the deal. If you're brave enough to ask the question that the rich ruler asked, which is, what do you require of me? There's pretty good odds the answer to the question is going to be, well, do you trust me? That's what God says to us. He says, well, do you trust me? That's what he was saying to this rich ruler, right? He was saying, hey, you really want to follow me? Do you trust me? Because if you trust me, I want you to go and sell everything and follow me. So look at the, the rest of the, the, the story and the rest of what we read. Look at verses 29 through 30, because I just think this is, this is phenomenal. Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home, wife, brother, sister, parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many, many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. There's a double negative here, and it makes it a little hard to read, but you could, you could go back and just see no one will fail to receive. In other words, anyone who follows me will receive many times as much in this age, in the age to come, eternal life. We'll receive many times as much what? Life. He's talking about life. He says, if you really want to have life, do this. I'm telling you the truth. If you sacrifice, if you give things for me, you will have more life in this age. Not just more, but infinitely more. Many times, there's a multiplier here, as much life in this age and in the age to come. It's a conversation about life. This isn't about a prosperity gospel. He's not saying if you give me $10, I'm going to give you 10 times your $10. This is about life. Do you really want to have life in Jesus? This isn't a, a way to get rich. This is a way to follow Jesus. This is a story about following Jesus. So Jesus is saying, if you, if you give this up, you're going to have more life than you can imagine. Not only eternal life in, in heaven, but life right now. The fact is, 
What Jesus is asking is really hard. What Jesus asks of us is hard. It may make you sad. It may overwhelm you with sorrow at times. But the question is, do you trust him? The issue of trust is at the very heart of generosity. And generosity is a critical element to your spiritual growth. That's why we made it one of the six essentials. So I'm going to tell you the six essentials real quick again. Remember, these are the six things that you need in your life in order to grow spiritually. This is how we position ourselves for the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit needs to do in our lives. You can do all the six essentials and not grow spiritually. This is just a way to position yourself to experience all that God has for you. So we ask that you gather. We actually ask that you do what you're doing right now, that you come to church. Something happens when we're together in the, in the congregation and we're singing these songs and, and Norflet or whoever the worship leader is, is exhorting us towards something, there's something going on corporately that we can't recreate anywhere else. So we say to you, you need to be here and you need to be here consistently. So we ask that you gather, we ask that you connect, that you actually are in, in a relationship with other people where you can share what's going on in your heart and they can share what's going on in their heart. That's why we're doing the whole Church Without Curtains thing in January. We've gone from 28 groups to 60 groups already. There's going to be all this momentum of small groups. It's going to be a powerful thing. You need to plug in there. You need to connect. We ask that you serve. Why do we want you to serve? Because God created you to do something. And when you discover what God created you to do, it brings life and it brings spiritual growth. And then we ask that you have a heart of devotion or we tell you that you need to be devoted, a heart fully devoted to God, that you need generosity and you need to be a person of influence. You need to be sharing your faith. You need to be light in the darkness. So those are the six essentials. But why do we put generosity right in the middle when the rest of this comes up? Anyway. Yay. Go ahead and just go right to the last slide with the arrows, if you don't mind. So why do we put generosity? The idea of the arrows is that these are all connected, that when we serve, we, we, it makes gathering better. When we gather, it makes connecting more. When they're, they're just all a piece of one puzzle, and we couldn't figure out how to make the, the graphic a puzzle, but that's the idea is that they're all interconnected. But why is generosity right in the middle? Because it's the place that God uses to stretch us. It's the place God uses to ask the question and to teach us whether or not we can trust God. Our mission at Grace is what? We are, you always mumble the first time through. None of these times you're just going to give it to me. We are, yeah. And if we're going to live like Jesus, then we'd have to be generous, right? Because Jesus was pretty generous. So the very character of Jesus is generosity. So if we're going to live like Jesus, we have to be generous. So that's why it's right in the middle of the six essentials. And one thing we see throughout the Bible is that God gives people over and over and over the opportunity to sacrifice something as a way of learning to be obedient, as a way of learning to trust God. So I love it that, that uh, Norflet talked about Abraham, but, but why would Abraham call, or why would God call Abraham to leave the comforts of his home and all that he had and go to a place that he didn't even know where he was going? Why would God do that? Because he wanted Abraham to learn to trust God. Think about this. Why would God put a tree in the Garden of Eden that was physically attractive, attractive to the eye, and that the fruit was desirable for eating? Why would he put that in the garden? It seems kind of unfair to put that in the garden. But he put it in the garden because he wanted the people to, he wanted Adam and Eve to, to, to trust him, to know that, that that's just stuff. But, but here's God, and I have so much with God. It was an opportunity for them to sacrifice something that was desirable for God, to show that they trusted God. Why would God lead the Israelites into the desert so they could learn to trust him? 
Why would God tell Gideon to send able-bodied soldiers home when he was facing a huge army? Because he wanted them to learn to trust him. Because in sacrifice, we learn to trust. So let's talk about a Sabbath for a minute. You know what a Sabbath is? Like the, the Bible says that on the seventh day we should rest and the, the people were commanded to rest. Why would God do that? There's, there's lots of reasons. But one of the reasons God would ask us to take a Sabbath is because it was, it was an act of trust. And you see, if you won't take a Sabbath, if you really think that you have too much to do and too many people to see, and if you don't get it done, nobody's going to get it done, and I can't stop and I can't slow down, and so this afternoon I'm going to jump on my computer and I'm going to do more work and, and I don't know how to rest, well, then you're really not trusting God. You're trusting in you. You're trusting in your, your hard work, right? So the Sabbath is part of, of a sacrificing, of us learning to trust God. So Psalms 27 says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in the military might, some trust in their skills, some trust in their money, some trust in their family of origin, some trust in hard work, but we are called to trust in the Lord. So learning to trust in God is a major theme throughout Scripture. So I don't know if you know this, but not only were they called to give a Sabbath day, they were called to give a Sabbath year. So every seventh year, they were told, don't plant any crops. This is, this is crazy talk. This is, this is an agricultural society. To stop and not plant crops was just, it was crazy. The world wouldn't, wouldn't uh, endorse this for a second. But, but God said, do you trust me? And guess what? The people didn't trust him, so they planted crops. Because what they said to themselves, what, is there, what if there's a drought the eighth year? We'll have nothing. Well, what if we go hungry. What if we don't have enough? So they skipped the Sabbath year and they didn't do it. But then to make it even crazier, he said every seven Sabbath, every seven Sabbath years, so 49 years, on the 50th year, this is what I want you to do. If you've accumulated any land, if you bought any land over those 50 years, I want you to give it back to the owner. Really. Just give it back to the owner. And if you have any indentured servants, I want you to let them go. Again, it's crazy talk. Why would God ask all of that of them? Because he wanted to ask him, do you trust me or are you trusting your cleverness and your ingenuity and your ability to build your own empire? Do you trust me? Are you willing to sacrifice what I've given you? Are you willing to see that I'm your provider? And all of those were, were places where the people could step up and trust in God. But the truth of the matter is they missed it. They didn't do it. And so they brought about havoc in their own lives. So we talk about the Sabbath and the Sabbath year but I also want to talk a little bit about tithing. Why would God ask the people to tithe? Because he wanted to know if they trusted him. They wanted to know if they really trusted him. So he said, I want you to, to give a tithe. And, and so as long as we're talking about tithing, I'm going to really talk about tithing um, because I have a few more thoughts on tithing. And somebody said to me just last week, how come we never teach on tithing? Well, today's your day. So here's the deal. I think when we talk about tithing and we use 10%, we create confusion. And I'm guilty of this, and I do it regularly. I actually did it in the uh, new member class that we just had, and I walked away thinking, I think I'm just confusing people because are we, are we under the law or aren't we? Do we follow the Old Testament law or don't we? And the truth of the matter is we're free from the law. We don't follow the Old Testament law. Otherwise, we'd be doing a whole lot of things different besides giving 10%. 
So what's the purpose of, of tithing? What's the purpose of the Old Testament? Is there's also still this principle that we can learn from what God asked of the people. But here's the deal. We don't even understand what the whole tithing thing was. Do you know that there were actually three tithes? There's actually three. So there's the Levitical tithe, which is a tithe that we always quote and we talk about and the churches uses to say, you should give 10%. And the people were asked, like, hold back 10% of everything you have and bring it to the temple, bring it to the Levites. And they were the ones that were in church. That's what was to keep the, the church in place. But if you go to Deuteronomy 14, it says that there was also this, this tithe of the feast. So you were supposed to keep back also, in addition to... You were supposed to keep 10% of all of your food, of all of the, the product that you made, of all of what you do. You were supposed to hold that back, and you were supposed to bring it to the feast. You were supposed to bring it to the, to the center of the town for the entire community to take advantage of. It was a way of making sure that everybody's needs were met. It's a picture of the Acts Church, actually, in Leviticus 14. So there's two tithes, and then there was a third tithe which was the fact that, that they were also called to hold back 10%. Now, if you're doing the math... That's 30%, right? So now there's 10% that you were supposed to hold back for the poor and the widows and the aliens. People who were coming in from the outside. Why would God want you to do it? Because he was always about taking care of the outsiders so that they would see God, so it would bring glory to God. So if we're going to follow the Old Testament as a, as a rule of thumb, then we probably should throw out the 10% and we probably should challenge ourselves to 30%. But this is a question, are you giving 30% or are you giving 15% or are you giving 10%? Is that the question God's asking? And I would say no. The question he's asking is, do you trust me? The question he's asking is, do you trust me? And so if you sit with the Lord and you ask him, God, what do you want me to do with my money? What do you require of me chances are he is going to stretch you in that area and he's going to ask you to give more than you think you're comfortable with giving and it's going to be called a sacrifice and it's probably going to cause you to be sad in some ways but the question is do you trust him are you willing to be obedient with what he's asking of you i don't know if you remember last week um if you were here i talked about this guy's name was gary haug him and his wife decided to do this red letter exercise and uh, so they're reading through uh, the red letters, and they said, we're going to take everything Jesus says literally. We're going to take him at his word, and we're going to uh, look at our lives, and wherever there's a difference between the way the world acts and the way Jesus says we should act, we're going to make adjustments in our lives. And this guy is extremely uh, successful. Uh, he's had a great career. He's a, he's a linguistic theologian. He's a college professor uh, at a seminary. Um, he's raised millions and millions of dollars for a seminary, so he's, he's just, he's very, very successful, and as they're reading the red letters, what he feels like God says to him and his wife together is, um, I want you to quit your job, I want you to trust in me for all of your income, which is pretty hard to do, and I want you to give all your money away, every month, 100%. He goes to a zero balance every month, including his retirement account. So he cashed in all of his retirement. He cashed in everything he had. And every month they sit at the dinner table with his kids and they decide how much money they have left and who they're going to give it to. It was amazing. And some of you are sitting there thinking, that's crazy. And trust me, I was sitting there thinking, that's crazy. And I could hear God whispering in my ear, do you trust me? Do you trust me the way Gary trusts me? And can I tell you, as I stand here in front of you, the answer is no. I don't know what to do. 
I don't think God is calling me to, to cash in my IRA, but I can tell you right now, the question is, if he asked you to, would you do it? If you heard it as clear as Gary heard it, would you do it? And as crazy as it sounds, if you could have spent a minute with this guy and seen the joy in this guy's life and seen the excitement in his life of living, he said, when I pray the Lord's Prayer, give me this day my daily bread, I mean it. He said, it's changed my life. It's changed the life of my kids. We're in this journey together. He said, sometimes his, girl, his, his little daughter skips through the house singing, God is real, God is real, God is real. How powerful is that? And so I'm not telling you this story because I want you guys to all cash in. I don't want you to leave here and say, Doug said we're supposed to get rid of everything we have and we're not supposed to have savings. I don't know what God's calling you to do, but I do know that we have to ask the question, if he calls us to do it, are we willing to? Do we trust God that much? Are you even willing to ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do with all of my stuff? I have this phrase um, that I use a lot, um, and it kind of became a mantra in my own life uh, when I was coming back to Christ, and here's the phrase, none of us know if we're really willing to give it all up for the sake of Christ. None of us really know if we're willing to give it all up for the sake of Christ until he asks us, but all of us know if we're not willing you really know what's off limit to God. In your heart, sitting right here, you know, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Don't, don't even ask me, God. No, I'm not going to give you that. That's too much. You can't go there, God. So when you know what you know, the question is, how do we give that back to God? And how do we ask God to change our hearts? How do, how do we ask God to show me how to trust you with everything that I have? Like the rich young leader, we're given this once-in-a-lifetime invitation to walk with Jesus, to be his disciples. And the fact is, we fail to realize what an amazing invitation it is. We have on this side of the, the, the room following Jesus, the living God, having God in our lives. This is, this is the invitation. And then this side is all of our stuff. But we find ourselves like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I like all this stuff. I don't know. It's because we have no idea how amazing this invitation is. We have no idea the, the amazing invitation that Jesus is putting in front of us. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Are you willing to ask the Lord, what do you require of me? What do you require of me? If we would ask that question as a body of believers, if we would ask that question, if we would respond in obedience, I believe we would change the world. This church would become a, a, a place of change in this city and in this country and in the world because God would call each one of you to do the very thing that he's wired you to do and, and we wouldn't have giving problems. We wouldn't have money. We wouldn't know what to do with all the money. You guys would be, and we wouldn't know what to do with all the volunteers. We wouldn't be scrapping, trying to find people to serve in the parking lot or to help with young people. We wouldn't have any kids on a waiting list and sore. I mean, if we really stopped and just got everyone in this room to say, Jesus, what do you really require of me? and we responded in obedience, our full-time job would be just to help you to move in the places that God is calling you to move. It would be a completely different environment. So the question is, are you willing to ask the Lord, what do you require of me? Are you as brave as the rich ruler? Are you brave enough to run to Jesus, fall to your knees, and say, whatever it takes, tell me, what do you require of me? 
I think the invitation to sacrifice is hard. And what I, what I want, I hope that you feel encouraged. I feel like this is one of those, could feel like a punch in the nose messages, and I don't want it to, because the message for me for the last few weeks has been it's okay that it's hard. It's supposed to be hard. It's okay if it makes you sad. It's supposed to make you sad. But the question is, do you trust me? And Jesus is whispering in my ear, do you trust me? And I think he's whispering in your ear, do you trust me? Lord, I just pray today. Uh, I pray that we would become a body of, of Christ followers who would learn to trust in you. That we would be as brave as the rich leader and that we would run to your feet and we would fall on our knees and say, whatever it takes. If you want me to leave the security of my job to do something different, I'll do it. If you want me to give more, I'll give more. If you want me to serve more, I'll serve more. Lord, you tell me what to do and I'll do it. But I, I pray that for my own life. And uh, I stand here in total confession that this is hard and that I'm still learning how to do this. Lord, thank you for the, the rich young leader and what an example he is to us. We are so grateful for your son who gave up everything for us. Lord, I pray that you would go with us from this place. I pray that you would encourage everyone in this room the way you've encouraged me with this story. That we would be excited about the journey. That we wouldn't see this as a, as a hard thing or, or a bad thing, but we would see it as a hard but good thing. An exciting thing. The greatest journey we could ever be on. Lord, bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as you're leaving today, um, they're going to give you...